Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'll be taking you on a journey to find the mysterious media mogul Matt Drudge, founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who have worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. Hopefully, he'll even sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hey, what's going on? This is Rad with another awesome episode of Softweb Radio. And today's episode is even more special. Not only is it SoftRep's 10th anniversary of being a website, bringing you media from within the, so- the special operations community and abroad. But it's also a sensitive time for those that are around this website who have lost friends in the Benghazi attack. So it's been about 10 years, September 11th, 2012. Everybody has heard about Benghazi. And if you haven't, well, we're about to talk about what happened on the ground in Benghazi. And I have former diplomat Ethan Chorin on with me today to talk about his time on the ground with extensive knowledge of the region of Libya. And welcome to the show. Happy to have you, Ethan. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I really just want to jump off and talk about your book real quick. Tell me the title of your book from your mouth so we can hear it, please. The simple title is just Benghazi exclamation mark. And the subtitle is long. It's uh a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. And I'm not completely responsible for the subtitle, but uh, it does the job. Yes, and, and I wanted to hear it from you because I read it so many different ways before we had our conversation, the, the title, and it's like, I want to hear you say it, right? So while you're listening, go check out that book, wherever books are sold, all right, and get into what we're about to talk about. Now, Ethan, as I mentioned, this is a sensitive time. You know, we not only have the anniversary of, you know, the Benghazi attacks that happened in 2012. We also have the anniversary of 9-11 that happened to us coming up as well. And that really is what kicked off, you know, the 11-year fight from 2001 to 2012 for us getting involved in a lot of global war on terror. Where were you at when 9-11 happened? Where was I? I was... uh visiting my parents in California and uh, had just made a, I remember very vividly as every, every, most people do, I just made a cup of coffee and all of a sudden I heard uh, my mother scream, come here, watch this. And then of course we watched as the second tower was hit. Yeah, same. I'm in that same boat. My dad came upstairs. He's like, Aaron, turn the TV on. I was like, okay. We woke up, turned the TV on. The first tower was already hit, you know? And then all of a sudden we just saw maybe like a moment later, just the second one. And my dad looked at me and said, okay, we're under attack. And I was like, oh, geez, dad, you don't talk like that. Former Green Beret, you don't talk like that. And he talked like that. And so, uh, you know, that's where I was. That's where you were. What a defining moment in, in, our, in our lifetime. Would you not agree that's a very big thing that happened while we were alive? Yes, it was certainly a uh, earth-shaking event. I would argue maybe that, that our, our, some of our reaction to it was uh, provoked a response 
provoked other things that that might have been better controlled, should I say. But it certainly set off a series of events that uh, has profoundly changed the world as we know it. 100% today. And so what I'm trying to lead into is that that 9-11 was devastating. And it's not to be, you know, overshrouded by another 9-11, right? And that's not what we're trying to talk about. We're trying to talk about an attack that happened in Libya while September 11th, uh, September 11th, September 10th, you were in country in, in Libya when that attack happened. Tell me your routine. You get on the plane, you show your special, pa- you have a special passport, right? Is it maroon at the time? What color is your passport? <laughs> well, the diplomatic passports were black, but at the time I'd left the, I was only in the foreign service for uh, about four and a half years. So when I went back to Libya in 2000, starting in 2011, uh, up to the attack, I was uh, there as a private uh, person. I'd started a small NGO that was focusing on medical reconstruction, basically, or support after the intervention. And, you know, with a, with a Libyan-American colleague and uh, some very loose uh, coordination with, uh, with Chris Stevens, the ambassador. So you were uh, getting a business up and going. Independent. At the time, I was not a diplomat. I was a regular citizen. But, you know, Chris Stevens uh, invited me over for, for dinner the night of the, uh, of the attack. And, you know, I couldn't, couldn't help, but I, I demurred at the time. I, I, I remember saying something like, or at least thinking that, you know, hey, Chris, you've got secure, lots of security over there and uh, we're, we're, we're unprotected. And of course, anybody visiting the U.S. compound in Benghazi or anywhere in, in the region, you know, can draw, draw attention. So, but of course, little did I know that, uh, in fact, he didn't have as much protection as he should have. But that, you know, the idea that I, that I might have been there and that my colleagues might have been there as well uh, is truly frightening. And uh, I was tremendously upset by the whole, whole experience. Chris was a friend. We had a sort of an unusual correspondent relationship for years. I had been in Libya before he first his first tour there. And he had asked, called me up and asked me what I thought of Libya and the posting there because he was considering it. And I knew that we both, yeah, it was the kind of environment that we both thrived on. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him a few months before the attack as he was being cons- confirmed as, as ambassador uh, or waiting to be confirmed. And I recall that he had expressed his frustrations with the pace of, of things and that he really wanted to, uh, he was concerned that Benghazi was going downhill fast from a security perspective and that the United States had sort of limited time to, ha- to, to get a grip on this and to have a positive impact, the key. So that, that conversation also struck, uh, stayed in my mind. Now, I, from media, okay, from things that have been put on the, on the big box that we watch at home, and from my perspective, I've heard um, that he wanted to go over with a small security detail to not really make a big presence that he was there during that, you know, tension built time in Benghazi where he knew it was a, a fragile situation. Right. And so he's is that my understanding is he was kind of wanting a small detail just to move in kind of clandestine. Well, I think Ambassador Stevens, Chris, as I knew him, uh, was uh, certainly very mindful of the fact that moving around places like Benghazi, you don't want to draw lots of attention to yourself. And there's a, you know, probably no no real good balance between being protected and uh, not drawing excessive attention to yourself. So, you know, there were various, there, as this has been gone into in various different forums, but, you know, there were specific circumstances around that uh, that particular trip which one can get deeply into which are you know very unfortunate but yeah i mean i i don't i felt after the after the attack that that chris chris's decisions were sort of unfairly and understandably i mean one can understand why he became a lightning rod and maybe to some extent a place to put some of the uh the anger and fear that people had but uh you know, I did. I did not. I did not see him as the as the. He was a risk taker, but not not without reason. So a premeditated thinker. So he was thinking his thoughts. This was not a decision that he took lightly. I mean, I also interviewed for the book many people who were with him just before and and uh, in the hours and the days before the attack. I'd been texting and speaking with him uh, in the day before the the days before the attack as well. 
so I have some, even though I was not a direct eyewitness, as in I wasn't on, on the, the compound at the time, I was sensing what was going on just before. And I was on the phone with people who were in contact with his people and had just been in contact with some of his security people before the attack and was on the phone with one of, one of his security people while the attack was going on. And then, you know, I was actually physically at a hotel about three kilometers away, which served as one of Chris's early bases while he was an envoy and which would be the sort of the other was the other place where well some strange things were going on around the hotel at the time and it's well it was just a surreal scene i describe in the book in the first chapter basically the 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 first long prologue chapter is uh is sort of my view of what happened from the day i left istanbul on a flight to benghazi and then building up to the attack and it's uh the it's not the sort of um security eye view the commando eye view that that we're mostly familiar with it's it's well it's what i saw well you're uh working for the country as a diplomat so commando up all you want sir all right let me just tell you that i talked to another well, i was remember i wasn't <laughs> at the time i wasn't <laughs> No, that's true. You were just a regular individual living your life, trying to open up a business to help the people over there with medical equipment. So I wanted to point that out that there was a point to where you were able to try to create a business, get it going, work with the locals, have handshakes with uh, businessmen in that industry, in that area. And I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Muammar Gaddafi's son, okay, who also was trying to like stop anything from happening. And a lot of people were coming at him and he was very West centralized with a lot of his talk and he was a younger man. I mean, I believe he got captured, et cetera, where he's at. I'm not sure. And then his father was found to be, in the, you know, captured and killed and dragged through the streets. Now I'm saying that up until Benghazi, you were over there leading kind of a normal life, trying to get a business running, correct? Well, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't a normal life and it wasn't a business either. Uh, I mean, we started a, <laughs> non, a small nonprofit and the idea was to try to bring American teaching hospitals and specific technologies related to like di- diagnoses of diabetes related illnesses. Di- diabetes is a huge problem in, in, uh, in Libya. And I felt like my experience there in the past was just drawing me back that I couldn't not be involved and try to do something. After the intervention, I called up, I called Chris up and said, look, I'd, I'd love to come back and to the State Department and work for you. If uh, And we both knew that was that was sort of unlikely. He, he, he sort of laughed and said, yeah, you know, Ethan, by the time you get back in the system and uh, and could join, and could join, you'd probably be posted to Venezuela and I wouldn't see you for a few years. So, um so I did the next best thing, and I had people around me who were similarly motivated. And yeah, looking back on it, I mean, it was sort of a crazy, in quotes, decision. I mean, uh, you know, I left, I was working in Dubai at the time, and uh, and my uh, colleague basically just quit what we were doing and started making trips to Benghazi. If I look back on it now and try to figure out where that rational decision came from, it's not, uh, it wasn't rational. It was a gut feeling, an instinct. And we followed it as far as we could. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the time in Libya as a diplomat was uh, one of the most interesting periods in my life. And I, it was a bit by, you know, I, I sort of wound up there a bit by accident uh, in a way. You know, the Arabic speakers in the department were all sent off to, uh, uh, sucked up by the Iraq uh, war. And there weren't, you know, I just joined and I had uh, Arabic and uh, other things that were a background in uh, resource economics and stint in an oil company. So they're like, well, let's send you off as a, as a, as a new, new diplomat to, to, to Libya. <laughs> and it seemed like no one else really wanted to go, which I thought was, uh, you know, Chris and I was sort of wonder at that. It's like, why wouldn't an experience like that, looking under the hood of Muammar Gaddafi's Libya, be fascinating. But uh, and that's, I mean, I think that's a bigger thing. Is that you know, particularly, I think the the theme of risk is one that permeates the whole Benghazi story and the broader engagement with the Middle East. And you really can't. And I know that Chris felt the same way. You can't engage with people if you can't talk to them and get out and out into the field. And the problem is that more and more risk has become the has been stultifying everything i think that's a number of of officials in the defense department and other places in dc have described this as sort of the benghazi effect that uh, this sort of 
mm-hmm. pervasive risk aversion. We can't, nobody wants to, to make the decision to send, to do something that might trigger another political blowout and wind up, uh, yeah, they have like, you know, yanking people in a committee. And that's, uh, that basically means that American foreign policy is hijacked, is hijacked to domestic politics. Like we're not, we don't have an independent foreign policy anymore. We're, we're always worried about who's attacking us or who we're attacking at home. And that is a true, that is one of the biggest threats to our position as a, as a world power. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years. And in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We should have more dialogue with leaderships around the world to at least have an open phone line. Well, that that too. I think uh, over the years, the, both on the Democrat and Republican side, successive administrations have kind of eroded our bureaucracies and our, you know, both, uh, both uh, sure. the, the ties and the, the communication between the military, the State Department and our security services. It doesn't work. It doesn't work very well. And that's one of the big problems uh, in, in with, with Benghazi was the the fact that there were multiple sort of pockets of professional experts who had an opinion about what was going on there, but the information didn't seem to to percolate up in a very efficient way. And the you know at, at the at the highest level there was this also this very deep justified concern that anything that was done would be fodder for. Uh, political attacks. So there's sort of these defensive walls and these misaligned communications around basic intelligence. And I, so that opens up a whole other doors of discussion, but there it is. Well, yeah, because right after, I mean, after 2012, after this happened, it was used as a lightning rod. There was a lot of chatter about Benghazi, you know, and then we had the elections coming around in about 2015, 2016, you know, but all that chatter had just kind of carried over to it. A lot of blame was being placed on, you know, the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the time. I believe she was Secretary of State and what she was or was not doing according to, you know, popular opinion. I know that people close to me have lost personal best friends in that situation and it's a very sensitive subject matter. And I too am a little upset that they lost their best friends and friends have died and friends had to defend each other to try to not die and try to recover, you know, uh, Ambassador Stevens, you know, body and, you know, to give him a proper uh, send off as he deserves, you know, for being a selfless individual to go into a hostile environment where he didn't feel it probably as hostile as it was becoming. He just knew that it was a, a, a powder keg and he was trying to get in there and maybe defuse it. And uh, it just got out, out of control. And that's me, the American's point of view. Right. That's what I think. Right. So I wasn't there again on the ground. Well, the Chris Stevens and other names we know we know well are without a doubt heroes. The degree of professionalism and, and selflessness was, you know, was extraordinary. Uh, I think, every, you know, everybody performed in, in a very difficult situation you know, extremely well. But unfortunately, they didn't have the, the, for, the, the resource, the broader resources that to avoid what, what ultimately happened. But, you know, Benghazi was a perfect, as I 
talk about in the book, Benghazi was a perfect scandal. I mean, you really couldn't have, have for a whole range of reasons, you really couldn't have designed a, a an event or a machine that would disrupt the the sort of the political space and our foreign policy as as much as Benghazi did, and in ver- in sort of ways that aren't visible. I mean, nine eleven, you sort of saw a lot of that was was visible. Of course, there was there were layers beneath it, which we discovered more and more right. as time went by. But Benghazi has been reduced to this sort of uh, event that ultimately a lot of noise and then not a whole lot of actual impact. And I think that's the biggest myth that I want to, to burst in this in this book. Benghazi had a huge impact. It just wasn't, it hasn't been sort of, because of the political sensitivities and toxicity of it, it, it has not been given its due, which is ironic, of course, because precisely you would think that something that had 10 congressional committees looking into it and, you know, endless news and memes and tweets, et cetera, would, would be more defined, but it's not. We reduce it all to the, that that period of time during the attack, and it's almost like there wasn't a before, and there hasn't been an after. It was just like that happened, and it just culminated to that situation. You know, why was Benghazi such a huge, such a powder keg? I think there are a couple of a few reasons. One is that it, of course, it, it took place on the anniversary of of, of nine eleven. It took place in the lead up to uh, to the presidential election in which security issues were one of the prime areas of contention between uh, Mitt Romney and, and Obama and and connected to so many other sort of issues, identity issues. It was also a period of time in which social media was evolving to the point where it had the capability to polarize much of the media and the general Correct. public to, to a degree that simply hadn't been around before. I mean, this is a factor that hasn't been discussed a lot, but I interviewed a number of data scientists and people follow social media trends and economics. And, you know, many of them have said that that period of fall 2011 was really the the moment where social media and its algorithms came into its own as a tool of influence. Had, had the attack occurred a few months before or a year before, or whatever, that would not have played into to such a... So the combination of all of those things and the animosities that, that were stirring around, you know, the, over for, for years at that point was just uh, created something that, that was much more... Memes articles written off of the cuff of feelings, not of facts. You know, everybody wants to Rubik's Cube it into their own narrative, so it just works for them. But there are, like, two sides to the story. It can be looked at that way, but nobody wants to hear the sides the way it went down. They want to continue to extrapolate that lightning rod, you know, and I'm not trying to, again, pick one side or the other. It's just true, and there's a lightning rod that is held to Benghazi. It has a nice, you know, it could be a nice town. It, it could still be a place where you can go and, you know, maybe try to, to live after it recovers from its situation that it's been through all these years of war. But, you know, yeah, I just don't like to see us polarize ourselves against one another. <laughs> Benghazi was the perfect means for America to essentially uh, fall upon itself and start what I call the you know massive exercise in self-harm or cannibalism, maybe. A cartoon that was published in The Onion a few years ago, which showed a couple of uh, jihadis sitting on a couch under the caption, watching TV, under the caption, FBI reports, uh, finds plot by Al-Qaeda to sit back, relax, and watch America destroy itself. Which I think is, I mentioned that in the book, and I think that's a perfect summary of, of what, what the partisan... All of that has done to this country. It's like we'll, we'll gnaw our own leg off without even being trapped. <laughs> right. Well, it's like we're not uh, even trapped. We're not even in the trap. Like the wolf in the trap, he would gnaw his leg off for a reason. We're just gnawing our leg off. <laughs> <laughs> that analogy could get pretty gruesome fast. Just stop uh, it. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, and I, 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 but I'll let you continue to talk, please. You know, if you think about it, Al Qaeda. I mean, I'm sure there's been some debate as to what Bin Laden and uh, his deputy and then successor uh, Zawahiri were thinking in terms of what they thought the consequence of 9/11 would be, and presumably, you know, that this extends to to Benghazi too. What did they? 
did they expect that the United States would tie itself up in knots over uh, launch a war in, in Iraq and become this twisted knot of partisanship? Because essentially, we're, by allowing this to this these conflicts to fester, we're essentially allowing our, adver- our adversaries, not just Al Qaeda, but other other competitors and, and adversaries Correct. globally, to come in and move into the space which we previously had much more influence in. That pairs with the uh, with the risk aversion. You know, we can't. And there's this pervasive feeling that we shouldn't be, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of people both on the right and the left that I've spoken with who say, you know, we shouldn't be in the Middle East at all. What has this region brought us other than, than conflict and misery and oil? <laughs> but, you know, if we're not there, we can't have any, any influence. And regardless of what we do, the Middle East has such strategic and other influence on us uh, that we, we wind up getting sucked in anyway. So we might as well have some, right. you know, I think if we abdicate the Middle East, we're abdicating our role as a superpower and our influence, which extends to all kinds of other areas, including, uh, you know, issues related to the environment and climate and future of the world. Otherwise, we become just another one of these, uh, you know, the, one of a number. And that's not what what the United States has, has aspired to. No. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years. And in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him and fought with him taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I think that you hit on a good point. You know, um, knowing a language of your counterpart can go a long way. Having someone sent into a theater of operation to take over for somebody that speaks Arabic and does not speak Arabic is not going to go well. So if you send diplomats to these far-off regions that don't have an understanding of even to say hello or where's the bathroom or how do I get a drink of water in that other country's language that kind of does a disservice. Well, yes, this is this this is part of this is part of the sort of loss of American expertise. I think the the you know with all of this politicking comes a lot of political appointees and people who and maneuvering based on a person's political views or affiliations or past past. Uh, opinions that really should not be a part of a, a cold calculation that's in American national interest. And we need many more experts. I mean, I think both the, the, the Iraq war, ironically, you know, I think the Iraq war and 9-11 boosted interest, general interest in studying languages and things like the, uh, Arabic, among others. But I don't think that that's translated into a long-term hard asset in terms of the number of people who are truly proficient in these languages and understand the region. I mean, from an analytical, when have the analytical capacity to offer strong policy advice. I'm sure the number of people who are trained up in Arabic has, you know, in absolute terms is, has increased, but not nearly enough and not uh, strategically enough. And I think that that goes across the board. Americans, I was going to say that, uh, you Go know, ahead. more uh, civilians learning the language. I understand the military going through the Defensive Language Institute. You know, you're going to send guys to the DLI. They're going to go there and they're going to learn how to speak another language. They're going to get trained up on that for their job. Like a Green Beret is going to learn another language. You're going to learn this for that theater of operations that you're going to work in. You're going to learn how to work with those people. 
that's really great because they're working on like, you know, how to like save a nation from fighting each other and killing each other. But what we need is someone maybe who's not so who, who's going through school right now in dual immersion, learning another language, who's a, an 11th grader who has fluent Chinese under her belt, who could possibly become a diplomat. Okay. With, you know, educated, uh, words. And a diplomatic corps that's capable of identifying and absorbing those people and compensating them at a re- reasonable level. I mean, it, it, you know, you don't join the government, to, as they say, to get wealthy, but the amount of resources that, that are available to hire and train and search for people who would, who would be able to serve our country in, this, in that capacity is, is not nearly enough. And it's constantly under threat. Those listeners out there that are listening to us right now who might be in school for a secondary language, uh, they should maybe didn't think what they were going to do with it. Well, maybe you could be a diplomat. Maybe you're diplomatic, you know, material. I'm just saying, you're saying it's like one of the best jobs you ever had. Well, I should say that the time that I had in Libya was extraordinary. And, and it was an extraordinary set of circumstances. I, you know, but, you know, I, I quickly realized that in my following posts, I mean, I had a, had a tremendous also uh, immersion program in, in, uh, in Farsi where, you know, essentially you could never get such a, a, a training and anywhere else in that context. But the subsequent uh, postings were much more sort of constrained and bureaucratic, if I could say, than, than I really liked being out in the field. I, I, did, not, I did not like being in a, in, a, in a desk job. And I also realized that, you know, in order to have the experience, I, it was almost like an inverted uh, experience. In order to have the kind of experience that I had in Libya, I'd probably have to stay in the Foreign Service another 10 years to uh, to get that degree of exposure, and yeah, I, I I I this is a bit of a diversion, but in terms of your audience that might be considering going to work for the State Department or etc., I mean, I think that the system needs to change a bit in the sense that it would become attractive to someone, you know, say mid career who has other skills who could come in, do four years of service, and then go out. Part of the problem is that it's it's been cultivated as this, you know, your your one career, you join and you stay there stay there forever. But people these days aren't looking for, and, and the world does not exist, that world doesn't really exist anymore. But as an early career or mid, mid-career stint, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, you can get a, a master's degree in something uh, that, that's covered by the, by, the, by the State Department. You can learn another, another language to a serious degree, and you can get an exposure to the rest of the world that you would otherwise not, not, not have. And I think that and fellowships like the Fulbright and various other U.S. government fellowships to study abroad are just exactly what the kind of thing that the United States needs. People need to get out, out of their silos and go and, and, and live with other people and, <laughs> and communicate with them. Your yes. worldview changes completely. Completely, completely. I, I've traveled around, I, you know, been to a couple places and and I come back to the America and I'm always just like, okay, I'm back in America. We are who we are. We are, uh, you know, the gun toting, you know, protesting uh, kind of American, you know, it's like, come on, man. That's all. Uh, come on. You know, like, what do we got here? You, you go over to, to England or to London and you walk that whole city, you walk like 30 miles so happily. You're just like, why is everything just so, I don't know. And you come back over here and everybody's kind of pissed off all the time. I come through immigration and he's like, who are you? Some kind of Navy SEAL duck commander. And I, I just looked at him and I said, does that get me into America? And he's like, come on in. I was like, <laughs> they didn't say that to me in England. He's like, what's your, he's like, what's your purpose over here in England? You know, my friend wrote on his, when you enter, you know, enter a country, you have to write what you're coming in for. He did, he had the notion to write international playboy. All right. So we go up, we go up, I write on, I'm in there for what I'm doing, you know, and I go to the immigration officer and I'm like, I'm here to check into your country. He's like, oh, okay, you're going to be hosting a boxing match. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you making any money? I was like, no, it's for charity. He's like, come on in. He looks at my buddy. He's like, what's this, mate, huh? International playboy. He thinks it's a joke. He's like, I've been to America. Do you think your international immigration would treat me the same way I'm treating you right now? And I was like, you know what? When I went back home, our guys were jerks. I'm an American. I straight up walked in. He's like, automatic name. What are you, a duck commander? You know, and I'm like, bro, like, let's get over ourselves. All right. We all believe the same blood on the inside. That's my opinion. Okay. Cause prove me otherwise. Yeah. I've had some interesting conversations on immigration lines as well. I'm just like, that's just me saying that, you know, call that out. But I think that 
with regards to, you know, Benghazi, and I do want to say a couple names. I want to say Glenn Doherty. I want to give his name, you know, some uh, foreverness on my program. All right. He's one of the SEALs that was lost uh, as a contractor. Uh, Tyrone Woods. Tyrone also Woods. one of his battle buddies, I Sean believe. They, yeah. They left the situation they were dealing with to try to get involved and help what was going on over at uh, Ambassador Stevens' compound with a lot of the contractors that were there trying to defend the situation and ultimately succumb to, you know, that firefight and uh, the death that this was bestowed upon them, unfortunately. So, you know, I just want to give Glenn a shout out and uh, Tyrone and, and all of the guys out there that did fight to bring everybody else home that was there, including themselves and their brothers next to them. I understand where you come from when you guys are uh, like, you weren't there, man. You're right. I wasn't. I was not there. But I don't know if Michael Bay was there either. And I just want to say this. Did Michael Bay, before Benghazi came out, that movie, did he talk to you about anything about the movie? I'm just curious. Because that movie came out pretty quick. No. No. Yeah, I thought that the the the, the book 13 Hours, I thought was a, a very useful and uh, rather nonpartisan description and very, very helpful. The movie was uh, was a bit a bit uh, not. And I, I felt that the mm-hmm. treatment of, of Chris Stevens in particular was very inaccurate and somewhat disrespectful. But yeah, the part of the fascination and and maybe a sense of of outrage that Benghazi provoked was, in fact, this empathy with those four individuals that, you know, and and admiration for their heroism. I think, you know, uh, who who would have the, you know, it it takes a special person to be in that situation to begin with and to to do what they did was, uh, was just admirable. There's nothing else... Yes. To say. And the immediate reaction is always going to be, you know, why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? And how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And to look for, and the instinct is to look for someone to blame. And of course, everybody started to look for someone to blame. But one hopes, and again, I, I, that's sort of an, uh, something that I, I keep uh, saying and uh, emphasizing in the book is that uh, we have an opportunity here to look beyond these sort of details about which some of which will maybe never even be clear and look at the context and how do we, how do we get here and what damage has this been doing to, to our country and our, our, our institutions, whether the military, the state department, the, et cetera. I mean, we cannot continue to be uh, as, uh, to use that metaphor before to sort of cannibalize our own ourselves over these issues oh, and yeah. take the eye off the, off the bigger issue. You know, what is our role in the, in the world in the years to come? Are they still conflicting over there right now with your sources? Do you have people on the ground that are like still chatting with you saying, hey, you know, you know, we haven't ever we're, we're not recovered from the situation. Is Libya trying to get back up on its two feet? What's your thoughts? Well, but yeah, this is part of the part of the issue is that the impact of of Benghazi on the ground in, in the Middle East has been spectacular. I mean, basically, if you look at Libya, we essentially went from intervening to protect Benghazi, a city of, of less than but under a million people, from the wrath of Gaddafi, to handing the eastern part of Libya over to al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS. It's not an optimal, right. <laughs> by, by far an optimal outcome. And the whole democratic transition, the whole governance process, as fragile as it was to start with, and it's sort of hanging by a thread, was completely overturned. And Libya has been, in the course of uh, the last 10 years, essentially set upon itself with various proxies fighting and adding more more fuel to the fire. You know, Russia with, with influ- influence in Libya, Turkey in the West, and various other proxies sort of cir- circling around. And the, the Libyans have lost control to a, to a large, large extent of their own, of their own destiny. That is, you know, for a country of 6.5 million people, that's, that's an absolute tragedy. And the same could be said of, of Syria. There, there, I've had many argu- you know, discussions with uh, people who are who very intimately involved with, with aspects of Syria policy, and we still haven't cracked that nut. But basically, the United States was, was working proxies in both countries at critical points in their revolutions and trying to, to pick between allies that we thought might be more moderate and steer away from those who are a bit more, radi- who are more radical, but we really didn't know who was who. And just Benghazi essentially, as one well-known journalist said, she, she felt that Benghazi had killed the whispers of a strong Syria policy. And now that can be applied also to our approach to warfare in like Yemen, where we're relying much more on drone warfare and less on boots on the ground and in-person intelligence. 
And I know that there's been a quite a bit quite a bit of controversy within the military about whether that's you know the the ultimate implications of of that. And I I also ask whether in fact our policy with respect to Iran may not have been influenced by by Benghazi as well, because the Obama administration you know had had suggested from the very start that had seen a nuclear deal with Iran to be a prize worth pursuing and possibly one that would avert war, but. Given the way that things right. happened with the Benghazi attack politically, essentially, and with the arrival of the Trump administration, of course, the Iran deal was uh, was taken instantly off the table. And I don't think the Obama administration thought forward to that, even that possibility. And de facto, I would not be surprised if Iran has a, a you know, essentially, will get a bomb, uh, will get a nuclear uh, weapons capacity very, very quickly. Well, the, the international, you know, nuclear program was working with Iran when we had that nuclear treaty to make sure everything was going correct. You know, Libya is not nuclear, right? They're not a nuclear threat at this point that we're aware of. No, and they were never really close to close to that. That's yeah. Uh, you know, Libya was used as a nuclear nonproliferation success in 2003. Again, after the, in the wake of the Iraq uh, Iraq War, something that we we failed to find uh, WMDs in, in in Iraq, but we have we were able to divest Gaddafi of his of his nukes and chemical weapons. But he really had no no nuclear advanced nuclear program, and he did have chemical precursors. Anyway, that's another. And again, sort of in the realm of in the realm of politics. Well, isn't nuclear medicine kind of like the same thing as nuclear uh, capabilities? If you have like you know the capabilities to have you know that harnessed for nuclear medicine, isn't there a need for nuclear to a point to where Iran and Libya could have those types of components to help their people versus like a bomb? Well, I'm not sure about medicine, but I think uh, power is certainly there's a there's a better interface or connection uh, with with nuclear weapons capacity, and yeah, I mean, I mean, look, there's a there's a fundamental that 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 opens up a bigger issue: who is allowed to have nuclear power and weapons? You know, Pakistan is a nuclear power, and uh, we don't, uh, and, and there are certainly that presents the same kinds of issues that 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 Iran Iran would. Right. I'm not sure I want to venture into this topic so so too, too deeply right no, now. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, my point was to say that the you can't obviously redo the experiment of history, but Benghazi really had a number of impacts, broad impacts, through the what I mentioned before the the sort of this pervasive risk aversion and the you know its impact on further impacting the uh, partisan warfare in the United States that are significant and we really don't give these days nobody wants to talk you know essentially you, it's interesting at least the perception is that no one wants to talk about Benghazi I think a lot of people don't want to talk about Benghazi yeah. because it doesn't seem to have a resolution. Like it doesn't lead anywhere. It's just going to open up a fight over something to do with Hillary Clinton or, you know, and who's, who's right and who's wrong about the video and all of this other stuff. But there are lots of things to talk about. And in fact, the things to talk about are how did that, the impact of that, those billowing clouds of partisanship that lasted for 44 plus years, that had an impact and it had an impact on how we do things abroad. It has an, it had an impact on America's, you know, uh, performance and ability to assess threats. And I sort of talk about Benghazi as something of, of like a, if, if 9-11 was the sort of original original sin, Benghazi was, kind of, and the reaction to it, Benghazi was kind of like a signal booster, perpetuated the, the, the harmful dynamics uh, without offering much of a solution. Yeah. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. 
I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years, and in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it did. It just like uh, it, it just opened up that wound again because they hit us on 9-11. 9-11 just brings us back to the original 9-11. People then just polarize the Middle East as 9-11. And then 9-11 just gets this this whole uh, branding yep. for uh, let's go to war. A friend and, and colleague who described America's response to the original 9-11 as something of a we should have treated this not as an ideological, a signal for ideological warfare, but a criminal, a, ma- a mass criminal act. And by engage- right. going into that uh, that space of ideology and with us and against uh, or against us and the war on you know the endless war on terror, etc., we managed to perpetuate the things that really should have been contained and addressed uh, as again uh, a a more or less as a mass criminal act. And we still don't, again, we still don't, ha- we still don't know. You know, because it, it was. Yeah, absolutely. But by essentially recognizing this, by giving fuel to the ideologues who launched the attack to begin with, that can only result in more harm to, to ourselves. And, you know, if you look at Benghazi, take the whole history from 9-11 to Benghazi and beyond, Al-Qaeda, with its, with its uh, strategic attacks, has managed to do more harm than I think uh, they ever expected they could have done, not just by their own hands, by our, our own responses. Doing as well. And if that's yes. something, you know. One another here in, a, in America, it's just an interesting, you know, what am I trying to say? Climate, I guess. Uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people in my industry and some people don't, they're like, Rad, you really think like that? And I'm like, well, think like what? Like giving water to my neighbor or uh, maybe giving you a bandage if you cut yourself? Yeah, I think like that. You know, it's like, how hard is it to think like that? You know, my neighbor is my neighbor. And uh, if something did happen here, I would have to defend him and he'd have to defend me. So why not just be neighborly with each other, you know, and instead of against each other, you know, (laughs) I'm going to come tread across your front lawn. If you have a flag on it, I promise you, I will walk across it. Okay. Put it up there. I'll walk across it. If you're my neighbor, I don't care. What are you going to (laughs) do? You know, (laughs) I just, I'm over that polarization of against one another as, as Americans. I, I quit. I don't want to gnaw our leg off anymore. We're not in a trap. Mm-hmm. Quit gnawing on your leg, you know, as a people. <laughs> not how I wanted to like kind of wind down our, our, our episode of frustration, but you know, we can, while I was writing this book, I had this sort of fantasy of what would happen if Republicans and Democrats could be put, or some representative sample could be put in a room with some all knowing mediator who could basically take the two partisan narratives around Benghazi of which both are, have a Mm -hmm. substantial amount of, of wrong, false material in them and understand where, and be exposed isn't the right word, but maybe it is to understand what of it is true and what of it isn't true. And I think that both sides would feel vindicated about some things and completely deflated on others. And it would be a productive ex- exercise, but we can't, you know, uh, some catharsis like, okay, well, you know, that the other side is recognized that we're, we were right about this, but we have to take that, take on the fact that we were wrong about that. I mean, this is the kind of truth and reconciliation uh, process that we encourage other countries, uh, which we think are less developed than we are. Self-awareness. But the problem is, of course, that it's increasingly unlikely that we could get to something like that because of the polarization, which, in fact, was was uh, spurred on by, by Benghazi itself. You know, you can't, if you're so stuck in your silo, nothing will penetrate. You know, the idea of, but it's been done before. You know, it's not, it's not a hopeless, and I think the alternative to this is just, the United States spiraling into a shadow of its former self. So we have to find some way to, to block and, and, uh, and overcome these uh, domestic political warfare. 
So it's unhealthy. <laughs> you know, and I, I just want to say, I just want to say, Ethan, you know, very cool conversation. All right. I know we've been tricking about an hour now talking and, and to my listener who's been listening this whole time, thank you for being a part of our conversation. And, and Ethan, I, I just know there's so much more knowledge, you know, the fact that you speak Farsi and that you know that whole theater over there so well, I, I would love to maybe reach out to you in another time and, and uh, maybe let's give Gloria a shout out, okay? Because she is a boss, all right? Your friend Gloria reached out to me and says, you need to have him on your show. And I was like, Gloria, you keep sending me solid dudes like this and I will always open your email, okay? There is no problem there, Gloria. And I just want to give her a shout out. I don't think I said her name enough, Gloria. <laughs> and, okay, I'll, I'll, and I'll I want to thank you, know too. <laughs> thank, thank you, Brad. I, I, I really appreciate having me on and uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Tell me the name of your book from your mouth one more time. Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. I should memorize it so I can say it a little faster. (laughs) And with that, I want to say thank you to former diplomat Ethan Shoren for being a part of SoftRep Radio with me today. And I am rad and happy 10-year anniversary to SoftRep and a humble anniversary to the Benghazi and 9-11-2001 tragedy. So thank you for being a part of Software Radio, and I look forward to talking to you again. Peace. You've been listening to Software Radio. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'll be taking you on a journey to find the mysterious media mogul Matt Drudge, founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who have worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. Hopefully, he'll even sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.